0: Um, I'm going to read a portion from Pilgrim's Progress, part two, the fourth stage by Paul Bunyan. Uh, And I do have some volunteers to help. Would James please stand up? He's seven years old. Just imagine him as a seven-year-old James. I think I I could visualize that. And Prudence said, we would see how Christine, Christiana had brought up her children. She asked leave of her two of her to instruct them. So she gave her free consent. Then she began with the youngest, whose name was James. And Prudence said, "Come, James, can you tell me who made you? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Amen. Good boy, James. And can you tell me who saved you? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Good boy still. But how does God the Father save you, James? By his grace. How does God the Son save you? By his righteousness, death, and blood, and life. And how does God the Holy Ghost save you? By his illumination and by his renovation. Thank you, James. Seven years old. Amen. Joseph, would you please stand? Now, this is the perfect Joseph. He's about 11. Then Prudence said to Christiana, You are to be commended for bringing up your children. I suppose I need not ask the rest of these same questions, since the youngest of them can answer. Them so well. I will therefore now apply myself to the next to the youngest. Prudence said, Come, Joseph, will you let me instruct you? With all my heart. What is man? A reasonable creature so made by God, as my brother has said. What is supposed by the word saved? That man by sin has brought himself into a state of captivity and misery. What is supposed by this being saved by the Trinity? What is God's design in saving poor men? The glorifying of his name, of his grace and justice, and the everlasting happiness of his creatures. Who are they who are they that will be saved? They that accept of his salvation. Thank you, Joseph. Good boy. We need Samuel to stand up. Now Samuel's about eleven or twelve. Then said prudence to Samuel, who was the eldest but one, second to the oldest. Come, Samuel, are you willing that I should instruct you? Yes, indeed, if you please. What is heaven? A place and state most blessed because God dwells there. What is hell? A place and state most sorrowful because it is the dwelling place of sin, the devil, and death. Why would you go to heaven? That I may see God and serve Him without weariness. That I may see Christ and love Him everlastingly. That I may have that fullness of the Holy Spirit in me, which I can by no means here enjoy. A very good boy and one that has learned well. You may sit down. Thank you. Thank you, Samuel. Matthew, would you please stand? Now, Matthew's about maybe 13 or 14, just a teenager. Come, Matthew, shall I instruct you? With a very good will. I ask then is there or ever was there anything that had a beginning antecedent or before God? What do you think of the Bible? It is the holy word of God. Matthew, is there nothing written in the Bible but that which you understand? Yes, a great deal. Matthew, what do you do when you meet places in the Bible that you do not understand? I think God is wiser than I. I pray also that he is pleased to let me know everything in the Bible that he knows will be for my good. Thank you very much, Matthew. Thank you, thank you, all of my little children, thank you very much. I'm going to tell a story and I may have told Vicki this story, this is one of my Italian stories. Vito was my grandfather on my father's side, my dad's dad. Joseph was my grandfather on my mother's side, my mom's dad. Both men were born in southern Italy and both immigrated to the United States around the turn of the century through many twists and turns, they both ended up working for the Pittsburgh Railway Company in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Joseph was a maintenance of way foreman for the track gang. He worked for the company, as they called it. Vito was a track laborer, a gandhi dancer, working under the direct supervision of Joseph. Both men were extremely different in the way they lived life, their level of education, and how they spent their money and what they did in their spare time. Joseph on Sundays when he drove home from church would spend his time either listening alone to Italian operas on his circa 1940s Motorola radio, you know the ones with the push buttons that were about that high, or if it was live he could watch it on his little 19-inch black-and-white TV on a cart live from the Met. Vito on the other hand, when he walked home from church, enjoyed spending time with his brother, his brother-in-laws, his four sons and their families, drinking homemade wine, playing bocce ball, you get the picture, telling stories that may or may not have been true, but they were good stories, then eating a large typical spaghetti dinner with as many people as you could cram around the kitchen table, followed, of course, by more homemade wine, smoking a Marsh Wheeling cigar, and then taking a nap in his overstuffed chair. And it was hilarious to see all the uncles sleeping. That's where they ended up. They ended up in the living room asleep. They did have one thing in common, these two men, and it was gardening. They both passionately loved their gardens, and they were very competitive in their approach to horticulture. They would argue for hours on the merits of sheep, cow, chicken, and horse manure. The constant debate was who produced more grapes? Who had the biggest eggplant? Whose figs were sweeter? and the most important controversy of them all, they lived and died for this, which of them could produce the first ripe tomato of the year? Every year, Joseph would win the honor of having the first ripe tomato. Vito, try as he might, could only come in second out of two. But Vito's tomatoes would appear almost a month After Joseph's first tomato, Vito was always suspicious that he was being tricked. Inganare, Inganare. Try as he might, he would attempt to sneak into Joseph's garden by pretense if he could discover just the secret of his nemesis. But Joseph's, the gate to Joseph's garden was always padlocked and locked, just like his. Joseph told Vito it was his special blend of manure, aged just right, carefully placed six inches from the base of the plant, the day after a full moon, and of course, just the mite of rainwater out of the rain barrel. Joseph was as if he was Elijah taunting the prophets of Baal. My grandfather Joseph, on one very special occasion, I'll remember this till the day I die. Swarm swore me to secrecy. He confessed his sin. His prized early tomatoes were actually grown in a hothouse in, somewhere in Ohio, shipped to Pittsburgh on a truck, and purchased at the local Foodland grocery store, then expertly attached to the plants by a very fine green twine, which Vito could not see because of his age, and the fact that the offending plant was always placed strategically in the center of the garden. Today, I want to warn you of two fraternal twin temptations that lure Christian men and women with their seductive lures and wiles in our postmodern society. These two temptations are philosophies, they're found in our workplaces, in our banking institutions, in our politics. In fact, there is no place that they will not be found. Their primary focus is always the same, an overwhelming concern for the bottom line. They are always, always outcomes based. One temptation is that of pragmatism. The other temptation is that of authoritarianism. John, I'm gonna quote from a, a, a gentleman, Jonathan Lehman. He observes at first glance, and this is a direct quote, at first glance they look very different. Pragmatism is flexible. It says, let's try this, or this, or this, or this. Authoritarianism is rigid. It says, do what I told you, do it now. Pragmatism respects autonomy and the role of assent, even if things get a little messy. The authoritarian respects order and efficiency and completion. Surely pragmatism and authoritarianism are not identical twins, but they are fraternal twins. Look beyond the surface and you will find a surprising number of commonalities. Both pragmatism and authoritarianism are fixated on results both define success by outward or visible change therefore they are subject to the methods their methods to any number of metrics measuring visible fruit both depend on human ingenuity to get their job done they rely on brains brawn beauty to accomplish their ends one authoritarianism strong arms. The other, pragmatism, strong charms. Christi- In the area of Christian ministry, unlike authoritarianism, pragmatism does not assume there is a right way to get the things done, but that God has left these things to us. So it sheepishly concludes, my way is as good as any, I suppose, But this ironically is not totally unrelated to the authoritarian's view, my way or the highway, but both can overlook God's way. Both, both can overlook God's way. Both the temptations, and you're wondering how I'm going to tie this in with tomatoes and manure. Both temptations, pragmatism, and authoritarianism are guilty of the same offense. Like my grandfather Joseph, they are both guilty of stapling fruit to the tree. And like my grandfather Vito, they are both guilty of defining success by outward and visual change, thus measuring the value of their actions by worldly and transient results. Please don't misunderstand me, truly, Pragmatism and authoritarianism are simply matter-of-fact ways of solving problems after assessing situations and then validating the results based on measured outcomes in politics, business, finance, farming, banking, and the like. Both pragmatism and authoritarianism have measurable benefits and serious consequences when their precepts are completely ignored. But both, when goaded by secular and humanistic thought, can end up with some serious consequences. The solution of an abortion as the answer to an unwanted pregnancy. The prevention prevention of a contrary idea from being discussed and debated in the free marketplace of thought. The sacrificial offering of any person or groups of people just to increase the profit, the bottom line. How many of us have suffered from the bottom line? But specifically for us today in the area of Christian ministry or corporal or personal, anything that attempts to produce fruit apart from that which is produced by the Holy Spirit, by his illumination, by his renovation, by his preservation, is simply sin. Anything... Anything, anything that substitutes itself for a deep personal relationship with God the Father through continual obedience, through faith and reliance upon the work of the Holy Spirit through Christ Jesus is simply sin. Also, any form of measurement or accounting that has been made apart from what God has valued, the obedient endeavor by its apparent outcome is simply sin. In the book of Judges, the last five chapters, chapters 17 through 21, which by, I want to note, they are not placed in Judges chronologically. I don't know why the author chose to do it, but he did not place them chronologically. If chapters 17 through 21 were placed chronologically, they would be somewhere right ahead of Judges chapter 2, verse 10. Mentioned here in the last five chapters of Judges are two historical accounts that speak to the total depravity of man. All mankind, without exception, those sitting beside you, without exception, you and I, without exception, are depraved. I warn you, that the human heart is so depraved you cannot trust its ability to measure success by outcomes alone. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17:9. You or I without any social law, without government, without any personal relationship with a heavenly king, could easily do the evil things mentioned in the book of Judges, or even worse things than these. Remember always, any man or woman, child or teenager, leading a life apart from him can truly say, he has placed us in slippery places. Truly, you set them in slippery places, you made them fall to ruin, Psalm 73, 18. And if you are without Christ, your ruin will come suddenly, and when you least expect it. And for those of us with a deep abiding personal relationship with God, don't get puffed up. But remember the words of John Bradford, there but for the grace of God go I. Any sin committed in scripture, any sin mentioned in the daily papers or thrice daily papers if you live in Harrisburg, Any sin seen on TV, real or imagined, apart from the act of living grace of God being sovereignly and mercifully imparted into our lives, any such sin could be committed by any of us, by you or me. Romans 12.3 For by the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And also in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it is said that that faith, that faith mentioned in Romans is a gift of God lest anyone should boast. Now you can look at the book of Judges chapter 2 just just as a point of reference. And again, if if these chapters that I'm going to go through real quick, 17 through 21, were placed chronologically, they would be before Judges 2.10. When all of that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Now, the first story speaking to the depravity of man, starting in chapter 17, I'm going to go through it really quick, is a guy named Micah. He steals 11, this is good stuff. I mean, really, this is good stuff to read. This guy steals 1,100 shekels of silver from his mother. His mother puts a curse on it, the money. Whoever has this money, may God be merciful. Ah, kill him! So she puts a curse on the money. He finds out about the curse, he gets scared. He returns the money. The mother blesses him. I think she knew he had it to begin with. So the mother blesses him. The mother then hires, because she dedicates the money to the Lord if she gets it back, so now she's got to complete her vow, she sends 200 shekels of silver to the silversmith to make an idol. This is great. This is right after Joshua died. This isn't long after the death of Joshua. So she sends 200 shekels of silver out of the 1,100. She makes an idol. Micah then finds a Levite happening to wander by his house, hires him for a yearly contract to lead the family in idol worship. Well, the Danites come by. They find this situation. They steal the idol. They make a better deal to the Levite. The Levite leaves Micah takes the idol and off they go to a village that they conquer with the idol, with Micah in the end waving goodbye. You know, it's almost like Shane, come back, Shane. But in this section, in this story, two verses appear and they're repeated through Judges. Judges chapter 17, 6 and 18, 1 and many of you have heard this verse, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now touching the second object lesson, I'm gonna spend a little more time on this one. It's a historical account that is very gruesome. It begins with the same refrain found in Judges 19.1, and it came to pass in those days there was no king in Israel. But this historical kind is, is much different than the first one. There was a different Levite living in the remote mountains of Ephraim. He marries a concubine from Bethlehem, so now she's his concubine slash wife. She gets caught committing adultery, and to avoid the consequences of her sin, she runs away back to her father's house. And after being there for four whole months, I love how the Bible says this. She was there four whole months. It's exactly the way it puts it. I could see the father. My daughter's been here
1: four whole
0: months. My God, oy vey, when will she leave? Well, then her husband, the Levite, has a change of heart. He comes back. He comes to Bethlehem to fetch his wife. The father in law sees the Levite and he's happy because she's been there for whole months. In fact, the father of the Levite, or the father in law of the Levite, was so happy he throws a five day party just to make sure he doesn't change his mind, just to make sure he takes her. He gives him a five day party. On the fifth day, the Levite wants to get an early start. He wants to beat the traffic jam around the beltway, but he misses it. They party a little bit too long on the fifth day. He gets a late start. Well, what are you going to do? You've got to camp somewhere at night. He's got a choice. He can camp at Jebus, which is Jerusalem, but it's controlled by the Jebusites. It's not an, Israel, it's not an Israel-occupied city at the time. This is very early in this age. So he can camp at Jebus. Or he can camp at Gibeah, which is owned and controlled by his brothers, the tribe of Benjamin. So he decides safest place, Gibeah. And if you do look, if you do, if your interest is spurred by this and you want to look at it, when you look up Gibeah in the Old Testament, there are four of them, but Gibeah of Benjamin is the most prominent is the most prominent in the entire Bible so make sure you're looking at Gibeah, of Benjamin and not one of the other three. The Levite after getting a late start, he he chooses to spend the night in Gibeah but when he gets there they don't have Motel 6, they don't have any place to stay. The guy's got to find a place to stay. He can't find one. Nobody will give him a room. So he's forced to set up camp in the town square. Well, he just so happens that an Ephraimite, a fellow Ephraimite living in Gibeah, happens to be getting home from work and he sees him setting up camp in the downtown square. The, the Ephraimite knows Gibeah. He's, yeah, you know, this, this is not a good move. You don't want to spend the night down here. So he takes him home, his servant, his concubine slash wife, and instead of making, the guy's very hospitable. He supplies all of their needs and all of their wants with his own supplies. So while they're enjoying themselves that night, some perverted men of the village start pounding on the door because they want to know him. I'm not going to say much about what they wanted, only that you really don't want anybody pounding on your door saying, I want to know you. It's not good. So the Ephraimite the man of the house, in order to protect his guest, the Levite, offers his very own daughter and the Levite's concubine. Yeah, yeah, sure, take both of them, but in the end they only give him the concubine. Think about the depravity here. This town is under control of the tribe of Benjamin. This is only a short time after the death of Joshua there are still grandfathers alive that came out of the exodus that saw the miracles of God. This isn't very far from them conquering the land and coming into the land. This isn't that long after that. This is not this is Gibeah. This is not Sodom and Gomorrah, a town of the people that had no knowledge of God. But this is a tribe of Israel and a town of Israel. In the end, the concubine is pushed outside. The perverted men are given to abuse her all night. In the morning, she barely finds her way back to the door and with her last dying breath manages to put her hands on the threshold of the door. The Levite gets up in the morning. He goes to leave. He goes outside, sees her laying there, tries to wake her up, but he can't because she's dead. Then the Levite puts her on his mule and takes her home. Then he cuts her in 12 pieces and sends the pieces of his wife via parcel post with a message to every tribe in Israel. And he does embellish the story. If you read what he wrote, he does embellish it a bit. So the result of this gruesome delivery And the embellished message incite 400,000 men of Israel to take arms against Gibeah, a little city of the tribe of Benjamin. The leaders of the 11 tribes offer the tribe of Benjamin a chance to avert all-out war by delivering only the perverted men. Makes sense. Give us the perverted men. We'll leave you alone. The tribe of Benjamin refuses the offer. Then the Bible, I want to draw your attention. This battle, this battle that takes place over three days, is the battle that is most, in more detail than any other battle in the Bible, this battle has more detail to it than any other battle, including Jericho. So just think. In in just a short time after Joshua's death, the Benjamites of Gibeah could become so depraved. But first, every person, understand this, every person begins life depraved. And every person living apart from the daily grace of God remains depraved. Everyone is not as completely bad as they could be, none of us are completely bad as we could be, the propensity for sin is always in us all. But also consider these people had no earthly king, but more importantly they had no heavenly king. And according to judges everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. I'd like to make an observation, just break out here a little observation. I have known more people like the Benjamites to make bad choices and ruin their lives when they think they're right as opposed to when they think they might be wrong. Wrong people tend to be humble, wrong people tend to be considerate, wrong people tend to have their hats, so to speak, in their hands, not like their counterparts. I just ask for all of you to pray for wisdom, for which hills you're going to die on. Now, the night before the first day of the battle, the children of Israel go to the tabernacle of God at Shiloh, which they should do, where Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, stands before the ark. So they go to Phinehas, and they inquire of God, who shall go up first against Benjamin? The Lord says, Judah first. Wow, gee, this is great. He already told us that in Judges 1:1. when they went to battle the Canaanites, who goes up first? Judah. They defeat the Canaanites. Yeah, this is good stuff. This is a shoe in. The next day, the children of the men of Israel, which number 400,000, gathered to do battle against the Gibeah, which number, and Benjamin, which number 26,000. It was a no-brainer. 400,000 against 26,000. The men of Israel had gone first to seek God's counsel at Shiloh. God had instructed who was to go to battle. Oh, this is no-brainer. Their success was assured. The tribe of Benjamin, which means, it's interesting, the tribe of Benjamin means son of my right hand. Well, every time it talks about him, they're all left-handed. But the tribe of Benjamin, which means son of my right hand, had a not-so-secret, but a very effective weapon. They had 700 left-handed men who could sling a stone. Now, I want you to just, just stop, connect the dot here. King Saul, who was a Benjamite, permitting David, a young shepherd boy, to go against Goliath, a seasoned warrior with nothing but a sling. Saul was a Benjamite. Saul knew the ability of someone who could sling a stone. This does not diminish David's faith. If you remember, David took five other stones with him. David was ready for the father and the four brothers. He was going to take the whole family on. He wasn't just, he was prepared for everyone. But God only delivered Goliath in his hand. I guess the others ran. Well, all the men attacked Gibriah, with Judah leading the charge. And the 26,000 Benjamites killed that day 22,000 men of Israel. Wow, what happened here? The Benjamites were definitely on the low moral ground, just like Sodom. Surely, the Benjamites deserved God's wrath. The men of Israel sought, the formula was perfect, they sought God first just like they did in Judges 1-1, and when they battled the Canaanites, they had sought and obeyed just like they did before. What happened? What went wrong? You talk about crushing a pragmatist and an authoritarian's worldview. Smashed it to pieces. So they head back to Shiloh, inquire of God again. Shall I draw near for battle against my brother, Benjamin. And the Lord said, yeah, go for it. Go up against him. Surely they had to reason with each other, this time Israel will be victorious. Maybe we lost the first battle because of someone's hidden sin. There was a precedent for that. Maybe someone did something that God was angry with and we all got punished because of it. God is like that, so they say. The pragmatist and authoritarian in each of us is always looking for the why, the what if, and the because. But if this was true, that it was because of some offense to God, the offense nor the offender was ever mentioned. The second day of battle... Now we're down to 374,000 men of Israel. They go up against Benjamin. Judah again leads the charge, just like God commanded. The children of Benjamin this time kill 18,000 of them. So in two days, Israel has lost 40,000 men, while the, Bible, while the Benjamites and the town of Gibeah have lost approximately 300 forty thousand three hundred. The pragmatic or authoritarian Benjamite and Israelite have both come to the same conclusion at this point. God must be on the side of Benjamin and not on Israel. An army of twenty-six thousand had whipped the loincloths off an army of four hundred thousand, not once, but twice. What conclusion could there be? Well, at this point, The Israel army definitely needs some closure. To leave the battleground now and turn tail and run would be to admit that they did not hear from God in the first place, that they were wrong, or God just was not who he said he was. And they can't do that, they're committed. They go back to Shiloh and they go back to Phinehas, the high priest, And again, they inquire of God. Shall I yet go to battle against the children of Benjamin, or shall I cease? We're losing every day. Do you want us to do it, or do you want us to quit? God answered, go up, for tomorrow I will surely deliver them into your hand. The next day, Judah again leads the charge, and all the inhabitants of Gibeah were destroyed along with 25,100 men of war from Benjamin, leaving only 600 recently widowed, wifeless bachelor Benjamites, who flee to the mountains for refuge, looking for a date. You gotta read the rest of the story. The rest of the story is great. I could see it in the newspaper right now. WW, recently WWJM, widowed, white widowed, Jewish male seeks Jewish virgin to wed, must like long walks in the park. Well, these 600 guys, they're wifeless. And the rest of the story talks about how the other tribes don't want to remove Benjamin completely from the equation, and they try to rescue the tribe by getting, stealing wives for them, so to speak. But let us consider one other example in the Bible. Um, and I'm just going to look at Abraham real quick. Abraham, the father of faith, mentioned in Hebrews 11.8, and also in the 12th chapter of Genesis, is said to have been called by God to go out from his home in Ur, travel somewhere that only God knew, and he was promised that if he did so, him and his descendants would receive an inheritance and a blessing. But in the end, the only actual property Abraham ever received was a cave at Machphila, Machpelah, which he purchased from Ephron the Hittite for 400 shekels of silver as a burial plot. God might as well have said to Abraham, hey Abe, leave everything you have, wander around for about 80 years in a tent by which you must supply, and when it's all over, I'm gonna get you a really bad real estate deal on a burial plot about 500 miles from here which will end up being desecrated and looted before your bones ever have a chance to dry. Sound good, Abraham? Oh, Abraham, by the way, you'll be my friend. Abraham, by the way, I'll be your God. Sound good now, Abraham? Abraham leaves. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found... And covered up. Then in his joy, he sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Matthew 13, 44 through 46. Abraham debates stuff, God stuff. God. God. Lessons for our lives. God is the only absolute, eternal, infallible, pragmatist, and authoritarian. For he judges the beginning, the middle, and the end by himself, through himself, and for himself. For when we dabble in either of the fraternal temptations, in spiritual matters, we are in danger of desiring to become like God. They saw the bottom line. The tree was good for fruit. For food, it was pleasant to the eye, and it was desirable to make one wise. Genesis 3:6. Lesson 2, as found in Hosea, chapter 14. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen, a cypress, From me comes your fruit. Hosea declares under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, your fruit is found in me. Your fruit is found in me. True spiritual fruit only comes naturally and only by the Holy Spirit's illumination, by his renovation, and by his preservation. And through Jesus Christ and by the grace of the Father, not by a stapler or green twine. Let each of us not think high, lesson three, let each of us not think higher of ourselves than we ought. Romans twelve three. for by grace given to me, I say to you, everyone among you, not to think more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith which God has assigned. And also in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that faith that Romans talks about is a gift of God, lest anyone boast. Number four, for those without Christ or a deep personal relationship with God the Father and without the Helper, the Holy Spirit that's been promised, a warning. He has set you in slippery places. truly, truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. Lesson five, come today if you hear his voice, be that wise man that sold all that he had for the priceless pearl, or like Abraham who left all that he had that he could be called God's friend. Do not sell what you have for cheap grace, as Bonhoeffer describes, cheap grace, is that grace which we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus living and incarnate. But I say to you, sell all that you have for that priceless grace that grace that comes through faith in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, Susanna Wesley wrote this to her son John. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes off your relish of spiritual things, in short, whatever increases the strength and authority over your, of your body over your mind That thing is sin, however innocent it may be in itself. Father, please identify these innocent sins that plague us each day of our lives, and by the grace of your Holy Spirit, let us put these sins to death through faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ our Lord. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them but transgressors stumble in them. Your fruit is found in me. Your fruit is found in me. Amen.